should always start in the people that know and trust you because you can't day one convince a stranger as well as you can convince somebody that knows you that you're trustworthy enough for them to give you their money to do this for them. And so start with the low-hanging fruit. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. On this episode, we learn the story of Josh Green, co-founder and CEO of Pursuit. Josh describes his upbringing as the youngest of eight kids in a Catholic family in Cincinnati to studying politics in DC after college, and then working on Wall Street to pay down student loans. He later moved into private equity, becoming the CFO of an aerospace manufacturing company in his late 20s. After almost a decade in that role, Josh felt the entrepreneurial itch and co-founded Pursuit, initially a marketplace to connect outdoor guides with people seeking hunting and fishing trips. As with many new businesses, they've pivoted a few times since. Now they're focused on fractional ownership of high-end ranches to provide access to exclusive outdoor recreation for investors. Josh shares the ups and downs of his entrepreneurial journey, what he's learned about selling early, fundraising, working with friends, and more. Well, Josh, thanks so much for being our guest on In the Thick of It, and thank you for hosting me here at your office in Denver. Welcome. It's great to be here. Great weather. Always. Don't tell all the Texans, though. Yeah. We got more people moving in our way, and maybe it's time for us to send some people out. Yeah, there's good reason for us to want Texans in Colorado, but yeah, the weather, just keep it to yourself. Yeah. All right. So take us through what was Josh like as a kid? What was growing up like? Where were you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well... I'm the youngest of eight kids. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. We were a big Catholic family with a lot of the a lot of the trappings of of uh, big Catholic families in the Midwest. When we're out west, people ask if we're Mormon or Catholic, and in east of the Mississippi, they always just say, "Are you Catholic?" And the answer is yes. I had a loving household. I have a lot of respect for my parents and my siblings and how they uh, lived life and how they taught us. My father was a small business owner. My grandfather had started a school and office supplies company uh, in the 50s. And so they were selling construction paper and crayons and all sorts of different supplies to schools. And my dad had taken that on uh, after he graduated from his uh, master's program. And he uh, ran it all while I was growing up. Did you work in the business at all? Yeah, we, I worked in the business from before, you know when I was like seven. Uh, my mom, we all worked in the business and the summer was our busy season or their busy season because all the schools want their supplies before the school starts. So my summer jobs were always in the warehouse in Northern Kentucky working with uh, Clay. We always got the worst jobs as the family. I, I think people have the misconception that like uh, the family gets the cushy jobs. No, we got the worst ones because you couldn't hire people that wanted to schlep you know, 88 pound boxes of clay. So we got the worst of it. My parents are hardworking. That was one of the core values of growing up is just work hard. The business itself did well in the, the 80s, but big box came in the 90s. And, you know, the Office Max and Staples of the world. And that changed the landscape dramatically. And my dad, uh, I think, had an emotional connection to the business. Uh, certainly did. My grandfather referred to the business as his third child. And so I think it was difficult for my dad to make some of those strategic decisions that maybe um, in retrospect he could have or should have, but he was really attached to that company and uh, wanted to make it work for his dad. 
And so in the 90s, when I was uh, growing up, I, I'm going to be 40 this year. So, you know, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, we didn't have um, much money, even though we lived in a nice neighborhood and my parents were pretty adamant that we'd go to good schools. But other than that, we didn't. It was tight. It was very tight. And uh, the business really didn't make much money for many years. And it was because of just tightening margins and more competition. And and we felt that. So I would say that we we felt the pinch of a family business and we we saved money when we could and we, we worked hard to, to make it work. But we relied on faith and we relied on each other and hard work. And my family's a pretty competitive family. Having the benefit of being the youngest, I got to see seven of my siblings go do interesting things and really cool things. Athletics was a big part of our growing up. Several of my siblings played college athletics and I played growing up too. My dad was an athlete. So, you know, what did you play? What sports? So, uh, I played football and baseball mostly, um, and then injured my shoulders and, you know, that was done for me, but watching the intersection of like faith and athletics and small business and a lot the, the common denominator is hard work and, and trust. And so those were certainly core values. And we, uh, I was lucky because there was a expectation for excellence and, um, as the youngest, I think I wanted to differentiate myself. Uh, I did not want to be just another green. I didn't want to live in the shadow of my siblings that had done really interesting things. Was that a personal pressure that you put on yourself? Yeah, that or? was definitely personal. I My parents never said, you got to go be different. It was just, I didn't want to be the same. And I think when you've got that many kids and I love big families, but when you've got that many kids, I think there's a desire to stand out. And as the youngest, I certainly felt that. And so I wanted to do something different. And in high school, I was really interested in political science and politics and government. And I guess one other piece of interesting data, uh, my parents had let refugees live with us as, when we were growing up, um, despite the fact that they didn't have a ton of extra cash flow. Our house had extra rooms and uh, actually another little apartment over the garage. And so we had refugees live with us from before I was born through all the way when I left home. And it was Cambodian refugees and Sudanese refugees and a homeless guy that uh, had been on the streets for several years, uh, alcoholic that my mom had gotten to meet and he lived with us. And I actually knew Paul, his name was Paul for the best. So that was really formative. But the, the, the way that I think that impacted my upbringing is that I was pretty interested in what was going on in the rest of the world and what I saw as, you know, severe injustices, genocides, and wanted to get involved and fix it. And so that's kind of how my mind was geared. And so I ended up going to Georgetown and I wanted to study international politics there. This is early 2000s? Yeah. So I graduated high school in 2002. I went and studied, you know, international politics and had great professors and really awesome internships and, and work experience, but saw that, you know, the, the governmental life was not going to be one that I found totally enriching post-grad. So I like the study of politics. I think the, the, the practicality of it is a little different. So my upbringing from an upbringing perspective, I, you know, I, I kind of link all those pieces together, family and, and living with those folks and how it shaped kind of at least my worldview until I was 21 or 22. 
And so your plan was, okay, I'm going to go to Georgetown. I'm going to dig deep into government and politics and I'm going to stay here in DC. Yeah. So stay in DC or uh, go abroad and work in the state department or something that was involved in, you know, expanding democracy and freedom and, you know, rule of law uh, for the rest of the world. Did you ever have a desire to run for office? Was that part of your ambition? Yeah, I mean, I certainly thought of that. And I think good people need to run. And I think it's becoming harder to get good people to run. Obviously, you see what's going on. But yeah, that was certainly in the back of my mind, too. Of, okay, well, maybe this is my calling. But yeah, I, I did change my mind. <laughs> was there like a seminal moment where it's like, oh, like, was there a light bulb that went off and made you say, I don't want to do this? Or was it a gradual? There's two things. So. In undergrad, I worked in the university president's office. So I was President DeJoya's uh, scheduler and briefer. So I put together all the packages for people that he was gonna meet with, give the background of them, tell them how much they donated to the university, that kind of stuff. And I was actually fortunate to be then invited to some of those meetings and to go to some of those dinners and sit and have conversation with them. And it was enlightening and inspiring in some cases, but mostly it was, I can't believe how bureaucratic this is. I also worked on the Bush campaign when I was there and saw just how bureaucratic a, an election is and how much goes into getting elected. And that was really a turnoff to doing it myself. So those two things I say were pretty formative. And then the third, I guess I should throw this out. I had a ton of student debt. So my parents really couldn't afford Georgetown and neither could I. So I took a ton of student loans. And when I was looking at graduating with over $100,000 of debt, I was thinking, how long is it going to take me to dig out of this hole? And government is not a way to get rich. So uh, at least <laughs> at least if you're doing it uh, on the up and up. Uh, so I chose a different path thereafter. Going back to growing up, you talked about the the family business and the staples and, and big box stores coming in and, and the pressure that put on on margins. Did you guys pull out of it? Like, is, is the business still running today? Good question. Yeah. So the business figured out a way to be sustainable, never highly lucrative. But my brothers are entrepreneurs, too, and they had an idea. And they formed essentially a subsidiary of John R. Green Company that didn't own the whole thing, obviously, but owned a good slug of what became the first online distributor of school and office furniture so that you could buy furniture online. And the name of that company was School Outfitters. And that actually grew to be really successful. And that actually created you know, the most value for them and the business. And so that still exists, but the John R. Green company itself got sold to another regional office supplier or school supplier and still exists. And they do good work. They take good care of customers and they give a lot of attention to them. It's just hard to make a ton of money without scale. This sounds a lot like Dunder Mifflin. Like we take really good care of our customers, yeah. but the big box guys are coming in. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think my brothers would die laughing if they heard that they were Michael Scott, but um, <laughs> it's different. Paper was actually where they tried to avoid because Staples does paper, right? 
you're not going to make any money up here. You got to do, you've got to do the teaching aids and the games and the lower volume stuff because that's where Staples and Office Max weren't going to do. So, yeah, as much as I might tease my brothers that they're Michael Scott, I, they, they actually didn't do much paper in the long run. Back to college, you've got this massive debt. You said it, you realized government wasn't going to help you get out of that, not quickly and not doing it on the up and up. What came about from that? So my older brother had uh, worked at an investment bank out of undergrad. And so I knew a little bit about it. I had not taken a single math or finance or accounting class in undergrad, and that was by design. And so I knew a bit about it. I hadn't taken any business classes around it. But I knew that they paid well, and I knew that they, you learned a lot. I knew that there was opportunity on the back end in the marketplace, right, in, in commerce and business. And I knew that I needed that education. So one of the benefits of Georgetown is they have really good on-campus recruiting with a lot of the banks and the, the consulting firms. And so, um, and they reserve a portion of those slots for their analysts, or at least they did for non-business school students, because a lot of the schools, a lot of the Ivy League don't have business schools and, um, and others in that same kind of uh, recruiting genre don't have business schools. So I was able to interview and land one of the jobs that was you know, allocated for non-business school students. But that meant that I, uh, I knew nothing. I remember my brother driving me to New York City to move in in July, because I had to start like right after 4th of July and asking him what EBITDA meant. And I mean, in retrospect, that just kind of eliminates just how little I knew. Uh, I mean, being the key metric for valuation, I, I mean, it was, I got my butt kicked. I learned a ton, but it was painful. And I'm pretty sure a lot of the people that I worked with thought that I was an idiot. But you talked earlier about that hardworking value that was built and instilled in you and your whole, your whole family. And I also know you to be a competitive person. So like, was that a motivator to oh, prove yeah. people wrong or? Yeah. The first thing was to prove it to myself. And the first thing was, okay, like I have to prove that I can do this for myself and learn it. And so the first six months in the bank were really painful. I mean, I worked a lot. You work a lot in investment bank, but I had to work even more hours than even the other analysts just because I was learning to play the piano at the same time that I was expected to play Bach. Like, you know, I didn't know Excel. I didn't know accounting. I didn't know finance. I didn't know valuation. I didn't know these companies. I didn't know for like financial filings. I, I had nothing. And so are you having to figure this all out on your own or is the bank actually coming alongside you and helping you in your learning? Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure they would say they help you in their learning and they do have a training program, but I mean, you, you can't learn everything that you need to learn to work in an investment bank in the six weeks that they give you for training. It's helpful, but you got to learn it on the job. And so, yeah, it was a self, mostly self-taught because and through just trial and error and, you know, having to just learn concepts and see how you model them and get it wrong and have your model not work and break and, you know, your associate telling you that you're an idiot because like you made this mistake. I can't believe you made that mistake. Like everybody knows that the circularity in a model is through the interest expense, right? Like I didn't know that. So um, that's where I just had to figure it out. Typically 
from what I've I've seen friends that have gone into the space, if you if you go into investment banking, it's typically a two year program, and at the end of two years, you're kind of expected to leave, and most people either go get an MBA or go into management consulting or something like that. Was that a similar path for you? Yeah. So what I disliked about the bank beyond you know the <laughs> um, the emotional toll that it took on me was just how far away it was from what I perceived as value creation. Now, I do think that liquidity for a market is value. Like, I, I can see that. But the real value was when you're, I was in media and telecom. And so when I, we were looking at media or telecom companies, the real value was in the product that they were making and how it differentiated itself against in the market. And then what premium they were able to charge to their customers because of that. That to me was the most intriguing piece and how people came up with those ideas and made them become reality. And so I knew that I was too far away from that value creation at the bank. Well, I could have made good money if I stayed, albeit with some social and emotional toll, but I could have made good money. I, I wanted to get to the closer to the product and private equity firms were, were recruiting out of banks and they're, you know, instead of being on the sell side, they're the buy side. And they had more control over the companies. They had more control over the product. They had more control over the strategy then. And that to me was kind of the next step towards value creation. And so I, I was fortunate to get a, an offer at a private equity firm in Denver, uh, Colorado. And my wife and I, well, at the time, fiance, we were looking at where to live and I'd had, well, yeah, an offer in New York and Chicago and Denver and San Francisco. And we knew that we didn't want to be in New York having kids. And so we were really down to Chicago, San Francisco, and Denver. And I liked Denver and Chicago. She liked San Francisco and Denver. And so the concentric circle was Denver. And so that's where I then ended up going to work at a private equity firm uh, in 2008, which was a really interesting time to start. Yeah, because you're right about to hit the financial crisis. Yeah, well, the financial crisis started when I was at the bank. Um, it started kind of late spring. And... We saw some, you know, weird stuff happening. And I mean, my, my roommate was a mortgage-backed securities broker at Merrill Lynch. And so he still remains a good friend of mine, but we're seeing the beginning of some real challenges. And I was fortunate to already have a job offer. And so I'd already planned on moving. And as soon as we left, I left in August of 2008. I, you know, Bank of America in September, bought Merrill Lynch and others obviously went down and Lehman and Bear and you know, before that. But um, yeah, it was an interesting time. And, and because of that, when I was at the private equity firm, we weren't doing a lot of new deals. We weren't buying a lot of new companies. But what we did was we focused on the portfolio that we had and battening down the hatches at that portfolio, which actually turned out to be a huge win and a blessing for me because that's actually where I wanted to go. And I got put on a company called Tron Air in 2008. It's a aerospace manufacturer. And I did a lot of work from the private equity side on this company and realized it's a beautiful company. And it, at the time it was not very big, but it had great products and great position in the market. And I spent a ton of time at the company focused on what we thought was value creation, but now in retrospect from a private equity, you know, I'm sure we did. We created some chaos at the company by getting so involved 
And that's not typical for PE, right? Like they don't want to, PE doesn't want to come in and run your business. They want to provide you capital. No, they don't want to run your business. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. Yeah. I, I mean, this is the delicate balance between like, like the world is crashing, right? There's no credit. There's no liquidity. It's hard to do LBOs when there's no credit. Real quick for, for people that may not be familiar, LBO, leverage, leverage buyout. buyout or, yeah. Leverage is debt. So the leverage, all that leverage is just a fancy word for debt. And you take up a bunch of debt and you put some equity in. And then when it grows, the debt is fixed or you've hopefully bought some down or paid some off. And then you get the up the upside, kind of like a mortgage in your house. But yeah, so you couldn't do deals. You couldn't be buying companies. You couldn't be executing leverage buyouts. And so we spent a lot of time at the company trying to, and they wanted some of it because they were like, we don't know where the world is going. And so any more horsepower analytically that we can get to figure out how to save money or increase margin, yeah, we'll take. So I did a bunch of just like esoteric research at, in the company. I'm like, what would happen if we did this price increase or we were able to negotiate these supplier deals? Going back to the bank where you came in and you didn't know which way was up. It sounds like you found your way through and you developed the skills and the competency. By the time you left there, you were then able to take those skills and really apply them at the PE. I think so. I'd like to believe so. I think I left with a different, I hope, a reputation than when I started. But some of my peers were going and getting the biggest private equity jobs because they were just further advanced than I was. That was fine. I mean, I I didn't aspire to work at, you know, the biggest PE firms. I wanted to work at a private equity firm where I could get involved with the company. And it turned out to be exactly the right spot for me. So, uh, yeah, in retrospect, it worked out. And how long were you with the PE? So I was there from 08 to 11 and worked that entire time with Tron Air, that aerospace manufacturer, and but was also doing other deals. And eventually we started doing more acquisitions and eventually I was on other you know, other platform companies too. And so diversified a bit of, you know, the industries that I'd worked in and how people were doing different things in different spaces, which was really helpful to me. And seeing how people structure deals and, you know, who's paying what and what's, how do you get a deal done? And then how do you make it a success when you're running it? And how do you exit for the highest? Like that, that, that all was really good education too. But what I was seeing is that I was still one step away from the value creation and, or what I perceived to be one step away. I was closer than at the bank, but not the team that was having the ideas and executing them, which is where I thought the value was created. And I still think so. So I went to one of the managing directors at the private equity firm and the name of the firm was KRG. It was a good firm. I went to him and said, Hey, uh, what do you think about me going to work at Tron Air? I would love to love to get closer to that product. I know it well. You know that I've worked on it for a long time. I know the team. I like them. Uh, I think they like me. Had you had any conversations with Tron Air prior to that? I had. I mean, I, they were always asking for me to do more work for them. <laughs> so I had a good relationship with them. And they were like, hey, can you come do this for us? Um, so I had an inkling that they would say yes. But I wanted to know that it was possible from... You wanted the blessing. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, great idea. We're going to be selling this company, Tron Air, in a year or two. You can go help do what you can to get it ready for sale. But you've got to take the risk on the back end because we're not going to be the owners. And you've got to be able to prove yourself. 
And I said, yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. Were you apprehensive about having that conversation? No, I was close. I, I, he was a good, he's, he's a good guy. And I, he and I had a good relationship, but if he had said no, well, I guess I should back up and say my first choice after private equity was to go travel with my wife pre-kids and spend a year and then maybe get a job. Right. Uh, I felt like I quote needed a break, <laughs> which in retrospect is kind of funny. How long had you been married at that point? So I had been married three years and we had no children. And I was, I thought, you know, it'll be a good time to just transition somewhere else. Well, you know, we were happy and surprised, but my wife got pregnant. And so we're like, we're not traveling when you're pregnant, nor are we taking that financial hit. So you need to get a job. And so that, then I was like, well, okay. I think a good outcome here is Tron Air. So God in his infinite wisdom um, gave us Peter and that changed really the trajectory of my life too. Obviously as a dad, that's huge, but, but also from a career perspective, I went to work at Tron Air and Kiriji did sell the business. And then um, another private equity firm came in and they made me the CFO and they eliminated the rest of the team essentially. So it was like a, a new team and I had a blank slate and new CEO. And was that exciting or intimidating or it's exciting. It's a little scary. You don't know if you're going to be on the cutting room floor a bit. And what I was just trying to do is work hard and put a good product on the, on the table and show that I knew the business, right. And show that I knew how to grow it. Did y'all have to relocate from Denver? Yeah. So we had to go live in Toledo, Ohio. And we were scared about that, but I will say one of the, again, another key lesson in life is you can be happy anywhere if you have good friends and stability and a high quality of life, which you can really have in places like Toledo, Ohio. I know that might come as a surprise to some, but we had a great neighborhood, great school, great friends. I mean, the housing there is wonderful. Uh, you know, nice old homes that are big and way more affordable than other big cities. So there was a high quality of life and you don't need 500 restaurants to go out to. You only really use a few of them anyway. So there's enough of a nightlife and enough of, especially if you're married and have kids, enough of a culture there. That's really good. So we really enjoyed Toledo, Ohio. Good place to raise a family. It was, and, and it was hard to leave when we needed to, but yeah, so we spent 10 years there and relocated all of us. Well, at the time it was three of us, Peter, my son, and Lauren and me. So 10 years at Tron Air. Well, yeah, 10 years in Toledo. Yeah. Um, almost 10 years at Tron Air. It, it, I mean, depends on if you include my, uh, my private equity side too, but yeah, I, I spent almost a decade with the company and, uh, saw it grow and develop and we sold it to other private equity firms and I got to do really interesting things as a young professional. And, you know, I was CFO, but we did tons of acquisitions. I was for different points of time, I ran sourcing and or procurement and I did just operational pieces, but also financial pieces and strategy pieces. And so got an awesome education in running companies that way and seeing how other private equity firms operate too. So I actually worked with them three private equity firms and each of them has a little different style and cadence. And so that was all good. We live in a day and age and, and I think it's been this way for quite a while where most people change jobs every you know, two to three years. 
What kept you there that whole time? Were you just really enjoying the work that much? Was there a culture? Was what was the reason to stay that long? I, I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, the reason to stay that long was a few things. I saw a pathway for this company to be spectacular and big. And we grew it a lot. I mean, when I first got started with the company, I had, I'll just say we grew, we grew up multiples and we expanded margin percentage at the same time that we were growing dollar margin. And so I saw a lot more runway in the space. And so I thought it could be a really interesting big company. And I saw the value that I could have on the business and where I could leave my leave a mark or, or I guess better said is make a positive Im impact on how they got there and the speed at which they did it. And so, and I was in a role where I felt like I could affect the change that I wanted to affect. I mean, you're pretty young still, like you're, you're a CFO of this company starting what, late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, I was 29. Yeah. And this is not a small mom and pop kind of company to be the CFO of. They trusted me, the private equity firm, uh, Levine Lightman trusted me and I appreciate them for that. And so did our CEO, Harley. He trusted me a lot and appreciate all of that. I worked hard. I tried to prove it. And I think that, yeah, I got the opportunity and that was certainly fortuitous, but I felt like I was trying to make the most of it. And so I didn't feel out of place. I guess maybe that's just, you know, being the young, back to the youngest of eight, like I, I was always around older people and always around people that were doing more elevated stuff than I was. You know, my oldest sister is 20 years older than I am. So, and I was an uncle when I was five. So like, I was always expected to be kind of more mature than, than I was, than kind of my peers or whatever. And so I didn't actually feel out of place. Maybe I should have, but I, it just kind of felt like that's, I knew I wanted that. I knew that I could do it. When I got it, I was like, thank you. Uh, I'm going to make this awesome. You're there for 10 years. You said you were with three different PEs. What was the tipping point for you to leave and, and where did you go after that? Yeah. So there was a little bit of changeover at the company. Uh, the CEO left. And so it was kind of a, a natural point for me to move on. And so again, back to this desire to want to add value. I want to actually create something right? When you're taking something that's already been molded and you're just kind of like putting another coat of good paint on it, or you're, you know, giving it another flare, piece of flare, whatever. It's different than like taking a, a ball of clay and making it into something. And so that's actually what I wanted to do. And so a friend of mine was building an elevator technology company. And, um, and so he asked me if I would help him. And I did. And I, again, saw, wow, this is what a startup is like, and these are the challenges. And so I worked with him for a little while, about a year and a half, two years. And, and in that time period, we had COVID and elevator technology selling in COVID is tough when people aren't leaving the building or going to commercial spaces. <laughs> so it was challenging. We didn't know what the world was going to be like post COVID. I mean, really for these types of companies. And so I was appreciative of that opportunity to help him build it. And the company is still going. It's called Lift AI and they're doing well. And they've eventually found their footing in product market fit. But at that time, kind of during COVID, during that uncertainty, my two college roommates from Georgetown and I started talking about what an idea would look like for a marketplace for the outdoors. And each of us had kind of been self-taught outdoorsmen. I grew up in the suburbs playing like I said, 
sports. My dad's idea of camping, he would joke, is showing up at a hotel without a reservation. So he did not like to camp, nor did he really aspire to be, you know, a hunter or fisherman. And my in-laws, my wife's family, are big fishermen and hunters. And so they helped me learn it. But I, you know, I started to say, man, this, there's got to be a better way to, to learn these things. And then as we become more urban and fewer people are living in the country and having the ability to just go out their backyard and go hunting or fishing, how are we going to pass these on to future generations? These traditions that I think are really important, like the, the lessons that you learn when you're the one that makes something dead are important for humans to contemplate. So I felt called to go and do that uh, with two college roommates, Trace Evans and Tyler Morris, two of my best friends. And that was really what began Pursuit. Real quick, working with friends and working with family can be a really tricky thing. How has working together impacted your friendship? So I would say it's changed it, but it's not worse. It's different. In many ways, it's better. In other ways, it's just different. You know, when you see your buddy and you're catching up on a Friday night and sitting outside and you're kind of sharing, you get a certain level of, of involvement, but you don't know if your buddy actually screwed something up <laughs> or if, you know, and you don't tell him if you've screwed something up. I mean, it's not like, yeah, I screwed this up today and made this bad call. You're, you're not usually getting to that level unless you're really deep friends with somebody and you've got a lot of time. So it's different. Have you been able to like switch modes or is it all like totally blended? Like, can you get together and have a conversation where work doesn't come up? Yeah. I mean, it's still good. Like, yeah, uh, we're, we're still tight friends. And I think it requires, you got to have just an emotional awareness of that dynamic. I can tell them things that I wouldn't tell somebody that's not my friend, right? Hey man, this thing's really hard and I need your help. Or you know, I'm really happy about this. And, you know, this happened in my family. And so today I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, you have a level of, I think, intimacy that allows you to, to say things differently, which is really good and really nice. But at a certain point, you do have to have some of that distance of like, okay, now, you know, we're not going to, we're going to give each other grace for our own struggles. And we're going to try to understand where each of us is coming from. And it's been great. Uh, so I would encourage people to do things with friends. I would encourage people to do things with friends that compliment them though, or bring out the best in them. Um, you gotta really, I think, have that, that dynamic and having a co-founder is really important. You're not the first one to say that. Eric Quorum, who runs AIM7, one of the, the things that he said he would do different is actually go back and, and have a co-founder. And you got that right out of the gate. Yeah, and that was, again, a big blessing. and. Each of us has a little different skill set, um, which is good. So Trey is, I mean, he's a partner at Founders Fund and a found, co-founder of Anderol. And so he's well-versed in venture capital, um, which has been very helpful. And Tyler is a, he's an attorney, but he also runs his family's metal manufacturing business. And so he has other experience as a leader and an attorney. And they can then, bring real value to the table for us. And so uh, knowing that you have somebody that's complimentary to you is really important. You talked earlier about value creation and wanting to be able to shape that lump of clay. You started 
appreciating the outdoors in college. Your your in-laws came alongside and, and taught you a lot. Walk me through the the moment when the idea for Pursuit came to be and where did you go from there? Yeah, so it was really kind of a couple things. It was first having a really in-depth conversation with Tyler and Trey, but Tyler gets the benefit of like, he always wanted to have the Uber for guides. Tyler has fished now all over the world. And he's like, there needs to be an Uber for guides where I can just pull up a phone and, and do this. And so that was A. B was like kind of my own experience of having, like going to sleep one night, having a really vivid dream and waking up in the morning convicted that this is where I was being led. And seeing the ways in which this could become so many other things because what you're actually doing is talking about education and using the outdoors as a way to teach and all the things that you know we want to teach can't easily be learned in a classroom and oftentimes some of the best teachers are you know outdoorsmen or pastors that happen to be, you know, great fly fishermen or whatever it is. And there's no, there was no platform for them. So, you know, waking up feeling really convicted and seeing it also for in my own life. And then Trey Tyler and I went on a, a fishing trip and we went to Florida for uh, tarpon fishing and Goliath grouper fishing. And it was pretty clear that this, this market was really inefficient and ineffective and hard to break into. So there's different levels of, I think we saw things that could be fixed. And so that was really the moment after that trip, we were like, okay, the name of this company is Pursuit because if we can teach people that the pursuit of the goal, the pursuit of the animal, the pursuit of the fish or whatever it is, the pursuit of the mountaintop, whatever you're climbing or skiing or whatever it is, like the process to go fishing is really where the learning is. It's not in the kill. It's not in the necessarily the hook setting. If you can get people to appreciate that, you can get them to appreciate a lot of things in the world that we find valuable. And at the same time, there's a good economic reason to do this too, because there's inefficiency and layers of bureaucracy and we can fix that. You talked earlier about being the Uber of guides. So the idea is we're going to pair guides that have capacity to to go take people out on a hunting or fishing trip with people who are looking for somebody. Yeah, the original idea was you should be able to open your phone when you go to Bozeman, Montana and say, I would like to go fly fishing this time. Who can take me and where? Or you say where and who can take me? And then you get people that, you know, ping in. You're like, well, okay, that's, I know I'm going with, you know, Steve at this time. And this cost and I'm just working directly with Steve. So that was the original idea. So that was the original idea. Where has it gone from there? Yeah. So the, what is challenging about that as a startup is that we're facing outfitting, a whole outfitting layer and outfitters are companies. I mean, they're small businesses usually, and they employ some people, but most of who they're contracting with for the fishing are these independent contractors that have to go through the outfitter because the outfitter has the permit. So there's a permitting layer. So there's a governmental layer too. And permits are important for these folks to operate. And so that is a hard thing to take on as a small business and a startup. Um, 
And I think somebody will, and somebody will, will change that. But for us, it was a big mountain to climb with just a small team. And so um, we had raised some money, um, which was good. And we were thankful for, and we had good investment backers, but we'd raised some money, but not enough to go do that. And so we, we pivoted towards being essentially the Airbnb for ranches where you could go and you could have a hunting experience or you could go hunting, you could go fishing, or you could take your family to a ranch. And the novelty is that these ranches are not set up for entertainment like this. If you get turned loose on a ranch, you're going to need a side-by-side. A, you know, you're going to want a shotgun or skeet, or you're going to want a guide, or you're going to want food and catering and cleaning. Like it's a whole system of suppliers that have to be brought to bear at the same time that you have the property. So that's what we were working on and which is helping ranchers turn their ranch into mini resorts by bringing these outside suppliers into the same listing so that from a customer perspective, you could buy the fishing trip. But on the back end, it was several different types of suppliers that we had integrated on our end. It's a turnkey experience. Yeah. And so what we saw in that test was that the easiest things to sell were the ultra high quality experience. So the best elk hunting, the best fly fishing, the most beautiful vista. And oftentimes the people that own that top tier are people that do not want you there. And so that problem, we kept hitting our head against this problem of, oh man, I would love to have that ranch over there on that other mountain that's 10,000 acres. And I see the resident elk herd that just lives there, but that's a $40 million property owned by a billionaire. Or I want to go to this Montana ranch and it's got, you know, 40,000 acres and it's got 27 miles of private fly fishing, but it's a fifth generation cattle ranch and they do not want outsiders walking around the cattle and, you know, you're not getting on that one either. So that really became the, the impetus to look at how we would be able to buy or help people that were friendly to pursue buy these properties so that we could get access to them uh, for our customers. And that was really what began, what is our current business, which is pursued properties essentially. Uh, we still do the marketplace for, for the ranchers and we still have some really, I think, good suppliers and we still support them. But the focus that I've had for the last, you know, nine months is six months is really on how to fractionalize ranches and then operate them on the back end on behalf of those fractional owners. Because I see value in unlocking these really hard to access properties for even what I'll call like normal wealthy people and further, right? Uh, that's actually how the general public is going to be able to start using these is when people want to allow the outsiders, if you will, to come and enjoy it. Yes, to pay them for it, but that's actually a stewardship model that I think is is really critical for you know our future path of having both private spaces and public spaces. And those same owners need somebody to manage that on their behalf on an ongoing basis because they have day jobs and they're not you know, fencing people. And so going back to kind of my prior experience of structuring acquisitions, this is pretty similar. Ranches are small businesses. They have income, they have staff, they have tax considerations, they have 
future acquisition considerations. And so structuring deals like this is actually very much akin to what I've been doing for many years in finance. And then managing those is very similar to what a private equity firm does, uh, or what I was doing, at least, and helping the teams of people. I'm not going to be a cattle person. I'm not going to convince somebody that I'm a cowboy or a cattleman. But I think that I know enough people now to find the right expert in that resident field to help us maximize whatever that specialty is, be it cattle or hay or fishery improvement. That both Airbnb and, and Uber, they facilitate these things, right? Uber facilitates getting you from point A to point B. Airbnb facilitates you finding a place to stay. And so for that model, you have to have a buyer that is willing to pay, but you also have to have a supplier that you have no control over. Two-sided marketplace, yeah. So that was the big issue with kind of your second model was you couldn't get the property owner to provide the kinds of properties that, that you wanted. We got some, right? But when you're only making a small percentage on each of the deals, because the majority of that money goes to the actual suppliers, which it should, you have to do a lot of volume. And so when I was looking at the scalability of that, I was seeing problems in how are we gonna get enough property that's easy to sell? You had enough buyers that were willing to pay the price for this. Yeah, there's people that want it, but it's hard to differentiate when you're advertising, and we were and we are, but when you're advertising, you gotta be really clear about how this property differentiates. And if it looks and seems like even a above average property, it's hard to differentiate that. And thus it's hard to gather attention from customers without spending a ton of money on customer acquisition. So that was one of the considerations is the unit economics and, and how you had to keep spending on advertising and, and to get those customers. And when you're working on you know only a small percentage, your profit goes away pretty quickly. How were you finding that customer? So the customers mostly through, I mean, uh, traditional advertising and word of mouth. And we were trying, we, we had started a, call it a membership, but it was basically a, hey, this is who we are. Pay us on, you know, a small amount of money and get a ton of that value in the back end. So go pay us, you know, 185 bucks and we're going to give you a thousand dollars worth of value over, you know, the next couple of years when you use us. And so that worked to some degree and that generate some loyalty and people talking about what we were doing and sharing it. Um, and that's been helpful for us because you have people that are incentivized to keep using you. But most of it was through traditional means of social media and, you know, paid search. You've gone through two pivots. How did you know when it was time to do that? And, and was there any, was it hard for you to abandon the initial idea you kind of know, I guess, you know, because you keep pushing and, and I heard it said one time that, you know, that you have product market fit when the ball starts rolling away from you faster than you can keep up with it. And we had never gotten to that point where, where like, oh my gosh, like this thing's on fire and I can't, I, it was still pushing the ball up the hill and not having it rolled down it. And so I think you see that you feel that and it was not hard to pivot then because, you know, you, you just picked a different mountain to go chip away at and push your ball up that hill with the hope that it would run away from you quicker. And I think you, you do that by small tests. I think that um, you start your pivot by still continuing what you're doing, but you 
you start to talk and test with other customers. Like, is it, you know, and plenty of people talk about how to do that. And so I won't bore you with that, but you just start, you know, incrementally testing and talking about the other thing, about the new thing. You find some, some success and you keep going and you success is anything from, man, that sounds great. What else would I need to know to, you know, starting to give you their money, right? I mean, that's what you end up needing. But no, it wasn't that hard, actually, because I knew that this was something that I think, well, no, no, I think I thought that it was something that we would have success with. How is the new model playing out? I feel really good that this is something that A, we can do and that B, the market wants. And I probably should have said that in reverse order. There are people that want to have access to the best places in the world to do their recreation. And they know that that's a premium product and they're willing to pay premium prices for it. But they know that at the end of the day, they don't have the time or the inclination or, or the capability sometimes to go, go spend the money and the effort that it takes to go own the $40 million ranch. And so by fractionalizing it, they have access to it. And there's plenty of examples, and I've tested some of these, of, of people that go do that. And right now, people kind of do it as hoc, ad hoc. But if we systematize it and make it much easier for people to do this, especially with people that they really know and enjoy and like to being around, I think it can be a community building product. It can be an investment product. It can be an enjoyment product. And typically, the you know real estate has tried to pick a lane we're either going to make you money or you're going to enjoy this thing, but it's probably not going to be both. And I think that there's a better marriage there that we can strike and that people want. Going back to kind of the, the formation of the company, you got to be a part of Y Combinator, which is hard to get into. It's a pretty cool thing. Talk about that experience. So we were fortunate and actually we didn't get in the first time. So uh, for anybody that gets rejected the first time, you should try again. But um the experience at YC was really formative. They create a system that inherently people want to perform within. They create a mini competition essentially for you to grow your business. And you're talking with your peers, but at the same time, you're like, man, these guys are going to be asking for money at the same time I am. How am I going to differentiate from them? Well, you differentiate by like showing success in sales. There's a strong push to start selling. And I would encourage anybody that goes for YC or not to sell sooner than later. You learn so much through the selling process. And I think that's one of their brilliant moves is they, they put so much pressure on you to sell that you learn a lot because your customers are your best, are your best source of information. And if you're not in front of them all the time and you're not debugging with your customers, you don't really know that you have something that people want. Talk a little bit more about like, what was the day-to-day -day like while you're in the program? Yeah, it's intense because you're, when you're in the program, the first bit of it is a lot of education and they give you a lot of resources around best practices for how to start a company. Um, mostly software companies. They do some other stuff, but it's mostly a software bent. And you get a lot of resources and help in how to do that well. And that's kind of your first bit of YC. And then you move into kind of the building phase. Um, where they help you set up metrics and systems to benchmark yourself weekly. It's not monthly, it's weekly. 
you're meeting with your small group. You get little cohorts that are based upon what kind of company you are. And you meet with your small group and your and your group leaders frequently and you get feedback. And sometimes the feedback is positive, but sometimes it's not. And you do that publicly and you there's only so much public flogging that people want to take before they just make, they're like, geez, I don't want to do this again. I'm going to make the change or I'm going to do the thing. And and again, that's like part of their brilliance is they set up this competitive environment where you're not wanting to look like the idiot. And that's good. Uh, that actually, just like athletics or other sorts of competition, you need that. And, but it is intense then because you're you're working alongside these people and yes, you're friends and you want to help them, but also you don't want to look like the laggard. Did your co-founders go through with you or did yeah, you do so it by yourself? We had hired a CTO, uh, co-founder, and he, Mason, went through with me. And so the two of us went through at the same time. That's actually one of the reasons we didn't get in at the, at the, the first time we asked was I didn't have a technical co-founder and I was kind of applying by, by myself, essentially. And when we came back with a co-founder and had more articulation of the problem and the solution, that that was enough to get us in. But yeah, it was the two of us. What was your biggest takeaway? Was it the fundraising side of things? Was it the the need to sell? Biggest takeaway is is um, sell. Don't wait to sell things because you so many people are perfectionists about what they want to get accomplished before they sell. And they're actually kind of nervous about putting themselves out there without being a perfectionist. And they're like, oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna look like an idiot if I'm selling something that's half baked. But you get just, just got to get over that. You got to get over that fear of rejection, fear of not putting your best foot forward always because you learn so much more when people tell you specific things about your product and they're using it. And when they start paying you for it, that means that they have, they're seeing value beyond what they can do themselves. And so that's when you know you have the thing. And that's actually the biggest, I think, takeaway that I've had. Do you remember your first sale? I do. How did you find that customer? Well, just like... A lot of people, and and I would encourage everybody to do it sort of this way. Start with people that are close to you. Start with the low-hanging fruit of people that know you. Start with the trip. Uh, you know that your buddy wants to go elk hunting. We'll do the trip for him. And that's what we did. And it's you didn't find somebody off the street. But you should always start in the people that know and trust you because you can't day one convince a stranger as well as you can convince somebody that knows you that you're trustworthy enough for them to give you their money to do this for them. And so start with the low hanging fruit. Yeah, that's what we did. Did you spot cracks in the product or the the system or the process right away? Or did it take some time for you to figure out the things that needed to be tweaked? Uh, it took some time. You know, there's a fact pattern that you have to follow. And so one is just a data point, two is a line, but you need a few data points. And so it takes a little time and you shouldn't do something based on one or two people telling you, it, uh, you know, that thing. So yeah, it took a little time. Coming out of YC, you were able to raise money. How did you go about that process? Were you putting together pitch decks and walking up and down? Yeah, so the, the last part of YC is they help you get ready for fundraising and they help you put together pitch decks and they interview you and you essentially go through these mock fundraising pieces. We had benefited from having raised prior to uh, YC2. So we had some cash and we didn't entirely need a lot more. So we were in a fortunate position, but yeah, it was, 
prep for fundraising and then you go through demo day and that's where they put, you know, hundreds of VCs in a room and you present to them and you get people that express interest in your deal and they make it as streamlined as possible to, to raise money. Were you nervous going into demo day? Yeah, I was. I like selling companies. I mean, I had done it from a CFO spot to private equity firms. But again, like when you're selling a, a sculpture that is like really well done and has all the painting and it's a flare like I was talking about, that's one thing. When you're selling an early stage company, you're selling a dream and you're selling yourself and you're selling results or as many as you can put on the page or in front of people, but you're really selling a concept and you don't have much time. And fundraising for private equity is way different than fundraising for venture capital. And um, you gotta be a lot more succinct for VC. And that's harder, actually. They don't want a pitch book that's 300 pages. In private equity, they do. Be succinct, what other advice would you give to somebody that's looking at raising capital? I think that there's a blend of assertiveness and humility that at least I think good VCs are looking for. The assertiveness and the strength is from believing that you have an idea and that you can execute it. The humility is that you're a learner and that you wanna, won't be so hard headed that if you're presented with a bunch of facts that you will still say that the answer is not that. And so I think early stage investors are expecting pivots. They're expecting you to be able to pivot. Thus, they're expecting you to be able to not think that you know it all and actually be open to the idea that I need to test this and find out with facts instead of thinking that I know it all just already. And so I think that there's a blend of humility and assertiveness that you that they're looking for at that early stage in particular. How involved have your investors been in the, the business? Yeah, we've got great investors and they've been in, involved from, I would say, an appropriately high level. When we need them, I can email them or call them, text them, and they'll respond and they'll help as best they can. But they're not the type of people that want to be running the company or they don't require a lot of babysitting. And that's really nice. So we have a good set of investors. They're not looking over your shoulder every day. Well, um, no, they're not. I mean, they want to stay informed, but they're wanting to stay informed mostly to help. I think the early stage ones in particular are, they put a lot of investments into a lot of companies. They expect that some of them are going to work and that some of them don't. And they just want you to be tenacious and tough and keep working on it. And they want to know that you're doing well or not, but at least ours are, I think, really nice about, or really helpful with their combination of actually lending a hand when you ask, but not asking for things that are just more work. Let's go a little bit further back in time. You've had a very successful career as the CFO for a manufacturing company. What was the conversation like with your wife when you said, hey, I want to go do this? We've had stability, I presume, you know, great income. And oh, by the way, you've got a large family of your own. Coming from a family of eight, you now have five kids of your own. Right. Yeah, I would say Lauren and I are a good pair because I'm more of a risk taker uh, than she is, but she really supports and 
she knows my heart. And so she trusts me in sports. So the conversation was actually pretty easy. She's like, Josh, this is kind of a no-brainer. You should go do this. And I can see it on your face. And, you know, I've prayed about it and you've prayed about it. And I think this is kind of where you're being called to go. And so she was wonderful about it. What were your first few days of running the business? Like it, when I started my firm and I came home from my last day at, at my previous firm, my wife said, so what are you going to do on Monday? What was your first couple of days like? There's nothing grand. Like you wake up in the morning and you're kind of in your pajamas and you just start working. I mean, I, you know, in a t-shirt and shorts and you just go to your computer and you're like, okay, the first thing is first. And there's not really a grand opening. There's no flags. There's no, you're just like, okay, well, I guess I got to do this. So it's kind of a very humble start of, okay, I'm going to send this email or get these things going. And there's not a lot of fanfare for it. You've been at this for a little while. Is there anything that hasn't worked out the way that you hoped it would or expected it to? <laughs> yeah. I think the experience as a startup founder is very akin to the faith journey, I think. And you know me and faith is important, but it's, you're told to go. You're not told where really, and you're not told how, and you're not really given a ton of instruction. And you think you're going to a place, you think you're doing a thing and you missed up, you go the wrong direction. Uh, and you just learn to not, your self-worth is not tied to the outcome of that thing. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people, including me to learn. So bifurcating those two things is as like, I am not defined by my success or my failure in this thing. There's a greater, you know, I'm defined otherwise. And I think that's a really important uh, thing to learn and hard and painful. And I think God uses that as a tool to refine and you just get better at saying, okay, well, I'm not gonna get too sad and I'm not gonna get too happy about anything here because it could all change. And I'm just gonna keep going and trusting and do it with joy or try to. And, but yeah, there's a lot of things that like, I wanted things to work. I wanted the Uber for guides to work immediately. I wanted to get access to the ranch with 25 miles of private water. I wanted to, you know, do a lot of things that I've had to say, okay, well, that's not working the way that I thought it would. Let's try something else and try to be excited about the fact that you're a miner, you know, and you're using your pickaxe and you might hit gold on that next strike. And, but at the same time, not being so stubborn that like you keep trying to, you know, extract blood out of a turnip and dig where there's no gold. So that balance is a hard one. Do you personally learn more from your successes or from failures? Oh, failures, but it's so painful. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I didn't need to learn it, but yeah, failures. I think C.S. Lewis said something about that. There's a, you get lulled to sleep and it's comfortable to have successes, but pain you cannot avoid. You can't ignore pain. That must you got to do something about it and that forces change. And so, yeah, I think that's a much better teacher, unfortunately, for me and probably others. I can relate. And I think that most people learn more from, from failure than success. What are the parts of 
your job, your role that you enjoy the most? And then conversely, what are the parts that you're like, man, I just wish that would go away? I mean, there's a whiteboard here. I really like starting with a white piece of paper or whiteboard, having an idea and then sketching out the plan for what that is. I really enjoy that. I really then enjoy taking that another step and, you know, putting the next, I don't know, 50 bullets instead of just you know, 20 on the page and figuring out the steps to get something done. I really enjoy talking to customers about that. And I like when they buy things. <laughs> I like it when they write checks, but it's because I know that, that I've done something that they see value in. And so I like that front end of the business of business development and growth and uh, figuring out the sales process. I like working with people. I like uh, working with co-founders that I implicitly trust. I like working with people that I respect. I like being able to blend my personal life and professional life. I think some people want to keep those two things separate. I don't. And the reason being is that I'm not a bifurcated person. If I'm you know, sad or I'm happy or I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z, I, I, I want to be able to take that where I'm going. And I want to be working with people that I can discuss that with. And at the same time, I want them to help me be the best version of myself. And I need that. I'm a social person, so kind of an extrovert that way. So those things I all like. What I don't like is drama. I don't like the drama of, you know, sometimes when you're working, you know, there's more drama around the issues of success or failure. I prefer, <laughs> that's that to me is not appealing. I'm sure people agree with me, but um, I don't like being bored. And so I have to combat some of that sometimes, but you know, I think that also keeps me pretty active. Is there anything you would change? Anything you would go back and do different? Yeah, I think I would focus a little bit. I'd focus more on the front end than the back end from a design standpoint. I think that um, there's so much about design that is important that I kind of glossed over at the beginning. I would certainly try to avoid banging on mountains that don't have any gold in them, but some of that's just part of the growth experience. So I don't know that I can really undo that but, or, or that I should undo that. Pain avoidance is still, I think, a natural thing and a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I'm sure there's a lot of small things that I would do differently too. What's been the biggest surprise of this journey? The biggest surprise is, is just seeing how you react and how I react to the emotional roller coaster of uh, startup. And um, I think that's a, something that you can't really know how you're going to react. Or you can say that you know what it's like to be in the thick of it and feel stress or feel anxiety about something. Um, but I think that's the biggest surprise is what it feels like. If somebody came to you and said, I'm thinking about starting a business, totally you know, unrelated to what you're doing, what advice would you give them before they made the jump? Yeah. Well, sell, sell early, get feedback that's customer driven. Don't spend too much money on stuff that you don't know that people want or that you don't know is needed. So sell the smallest possible thing that you can sell, even give it away maybe, but get people using and sell and giving you feedback on the product. Have a co-founder that 
brings out the best in you, that helps you sell. <laughs> uh, and that helps you stay positive when you're not positive. That's a big thing. Focus on profitability. I think uh, in the current environment, people are more focused on profitability. And I think that's good. Um, I think you can worry about scale later. And there's maybe ways to scale what you're doing. But creating something that's profitable first is uh, important. I would also say for fundraising, go out there and be confident, but humble. And I think don't be afraid to take money early and start learning how to fundraise and learning what kind of VCs you want to have in your corner and the ultimate long-term value of that. Because if you're fundraising again in the future, you're going to want those early fundraisers, your early VCs to help you fundraise and to make recommendations and to be in your, to be a, 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 a sounding board for you, but also a recommendation for you for those other firms. So start that early, take money. I think that's actually one that I would say, if you're, if you're trying to build something big, you need a fundraising arm. What's next? Uh, next is getting our first fractional deal done. And we've been very close. And I see the value, or I see the, the finish line, and I see what could be, and I'm working like heck to get our first deal done. And when I do, I think it's gonna be wonderful for us. If not, then uh, we'll have to figure something else out. But I think we're in the right mountain range, and I think we're beating on the right mountain, and we still have plenty of runway left, and many more shots on goal. So yeah, well, I hope to strike gold, but if not, we'll do the same thing that we've done a couple times and learn from it and figure out where is the right place then. What do you think the company looks like two years from now? Two years from now, hmm, I think that we're fractionalizing ranches and managing them on people's behalf. And we've done several deals and we're, we've got a apparatus that will be able to fractionalize different types of properties and assets. And I think that just given the nature of how the economics work, I think that we'll be able to hire staff and staff to go sell, staff to acquire more supply, also staff to build more software tools and app and other, I think, functionality that our users are going to want to have. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to share? No, I think I've said most of it. I, I encourage people to be entrepreneurial. And I think a lot of people associate that with starting something. But I don't actually think that that's necessarily what entrepreneurial means. I think that entrepreneurial means to have an attitude towards learning and exploration and risk-taking, but risk-taking that's calculated. And it's risk-taking for your own you know, you got to put yourself out there. You've got to be okay with looking a little bit silly or having people say, I can't believe he's doing that. And that's, I think, really good for not just an economy, but it's good for people and it's good for development. And it's good for, I think, the world to be exploring those things. And you can be an entrepreneur in various ways, but I think it's really the that attitude of exploration and through the scientific process actually, but with those characteristics of humility and tenaciousness and conviction and that balance of those links. Josh, thank you for sharing your story. 
Thanks for being a guest on In the Thick of It. That was Josh Green, co-founder and CEO of Pursuit. To learn more, visit PursuitOutside.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 